guys have any um, things that you enjoy that you're embarrassed that you enjoy? I think there's more of you. I will confess to you this morning that I have a, um, maybe up until now, a secret fascination with church fail videos on YouTube. <laughs> I don't know what it is about watching other churches. <laughs> I was gonna say fall apart, that might be an overstatement. People on stage fall apart in humorous ways that just warms my soul. Uh, and, and quite possibly, admittedly, because I've had many uh, embarrassing moments on stage. Um, some of you will remember, if you were here, way back in our very first year of operation at Church on the Rock, Homer, um, I was singing the song, Pharaoh, Pharaoh. You guys remember that? Oh, yeah. And I started, I started one verse, and I realized I was in the wrong verse, and so I switched seamlessly to the next verse, and the lines that I pieced together was, uh, Moses raised his rod and stuck it in his throat. <laughs> and I, I thought I had moved past that moment pretty graciously, but I was co-leading with a guy named Jonathan Walker. And Jonathan Walker has no ability to let those things go. So he came up on stage and said, so let me get this right. <laughs> it was great. So I want to show you a little clip. This is one of my favorites. Might be one of the most well-known, but I got to give you a little backstory here. A church had a guy who had recently given his life to Christ, and he was a musician. He had played in a death metal band, and they asked him if he wanted to play on the worship team, and he agreed, and this is his, this was his debut. to him like she's not even blinking I kind of want to know like did rehearsal go that way or was that like was it all a surprise uh, I love it so this morning what I want to talk about is corporate worship uh, we've been having a conversation uh, as a church over the last year about why we do corporate worship together the way that we do it and what are the different uh, variables that impact the way that we do corporate worship and why do we fall where we do on those different variables. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to I'm going to start out with a little bit of talk just about 
kind of speaking a little more generally about um, uh, corporate worship, uh, where, where we get that from or where we get the idea from. But then I want to go into the specifics about the form that it takes here at Church on the Rock Homer and why. Um, and then at the end, we'll kind of come back around and I want to talk a little bit about the heart uh, and our heart engagement in worship. I want to start out just really quickly, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this, but I want to start out really quickly referencing what I think is probably one of the most well-known discussions about worship in the scripture, and that is uh, the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. She has a conversation with Jesus, and essentially the conversation is, I... I I sense that you're a prophet. Let's talk about let's talk about theology, not talk about me. Um, so they're at the well that Jacob dug, and Jacob had met God in that place. And yet the Jews said that the Samaritans couldn't worship anywhere but in Jerusalem, where they had sanctioned worship. And she says, "What do you think about that?" And Jesus responds and says, "There will come a day when it won't be here or there." And he makes a statement about worship that has guided uh, my life for, a, for over a couple of decades now. He says to her, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But a time is coming and even now has arrived when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Basically what he says is, you're asking a question about form and I want you to know that substance takes precedence over form. The issue is not ultimately location. Now notice he doesn't say that location doesn't matter. He says it's not the higher issue. The higher issue is that you cannot worship a God that you do not know. Because worship, by definition, is always responsive. God initiates worship by revealing himself. He shows up when we see him, when we behold him, when we experience him or learn something about him. It produces in our hearts, when our hearts are rightly attuned to him, worship. Worship is a response. In truth and in spirit, in spirit and in untruth. That is, worship is our inner person responding to who he truly is. And for worship to be appropriate, it must reflect the truth about God. And that's true with any loving expression. If you're married, you have spent some amount of time and energy, I trust, I hope, figuring out how to love your spouse based on who they actually are versus who you imagine them to be. Have you found that to be difficult? This is the participation part. Difficult? Yes. Some newlyweds back there that won't raise their hands. Yeah. You give it time. It's the same with God. We learn about him, and as we do so, our worship becomes more true. Now, he does not say that form doesn't matter. He says that forms are fading. There will come a time where the location will not matter. And he seems to be suggesting that form doesn't take precedence over substance. But what I want to talk about today is form. Why do we do it the way that we do it? And here's what happens. 
and this happens all the time with us Christians, is as soon as we come to some understanding, oh, this is why we do it, the way that we do it, we turn to someone else and say, yeah, you're doing it wrong. No. Worship can take different forms and still be true worship. But at the end of the day, we have to decide here how we're going to do it. And so that's what I want to talk about. Are you ready? Scott's ready. Is anyone else ready? Okay. Thank you, Laura. Worship as collective praise, which is one form of worship, collective praise, that is when people come together and sing praise to God, worship as collective praise is a fixture of religious expression throughout the scriptures. It was practiced by Jesus and is very prominent in all descriptions of heaven. Matthew 26, 30, after singing a hymn, this is after the Last Supper, the Jesus and his 11 disciples sang a hymn together to, to close their time. They went out to the Mount of Olives. Colossians 3, 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness so in your hearts to, the, to God. Ephesians 5.19, singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord. Hebrews 13.15, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips praising his name. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a conversation about form while avoiding the temptation to turn our convictions about form into a certain kind of religiosity, okay? So here's the deal. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to describe five of the most significant variables uh, to help you understand what a variable is. I'll show you the first one while I describe what I'm going to do. The first variable in worship is actually a very simple one. Should worship be quiet? or loud. Now, if you're on the loud side, you stay here. If you're on the quiet side, I'd ask that you go out into the commons. No, just kidding. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take these five variables and I'm going to show you uh, why we made the decision we did about where we fall on that variable and then tell you where we think that we fall on the variable. Now, you need to understand this. When we talked as a whole leadership team, we did not internally agree on where we fall. Some of our own people think that we're louder than I think that we are, and some of our own people think that we're quieter than I think that we are. Is that fair? So not only do we have different, different thoughts about what's appropriate, we have different gauges by which we would even describe our church. So some of you will walk out and say, man, it was loud. And some of you will walk out and say, man, I could have used a little bit more bass this morning. Is that fair? We're describing the same thing, but we're describing it based on our own experiences. So, is there any, oh, for this part, I'm going to invite my good friend, Chris Kincaid up. He's gonna help us with this section. Where did he go? 
That was the most musician entrance I think I've ever seen you do. That was amazing. So, um, Chris, could you give us one example of a song that we do that is a quiet song? Quiet song? Let's see. Hold on. Let me get my charting up here. Take your time. Take your time. start singing. Sorry, go. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word. Y'all can sing. Just to Sorry, I know. We got too much to get through. Now, doesn't that song beg for a quiet approach? Yeah. Now, do we do any songs here that beg for volume? Yes. We do. In fact, there's one I think is one of our favorites. Do you know what it is? Oh my goodness. She nailed she it. She called it. My sin was heavy, but chains break at the weight of your glory. I needed shelter, I was an orphan. Now you call me a citizen of heaven. When I was broken, you were my healing. Now your love is the air that I'm breathing. Are you ready? I have a future, my eyes are open. And when you call my name, sing it out. to be loud. So, is there any biblical evidence lending to our capacity to answer the question, should it be loud or quiet? Here we go. I'm going to give you a couple examples. Praise him with loud symbols. Praise him with resounding symbols. Psalms 150. Shout joyfully to the Lord of Jacob. Psalms 81. So all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn, with trumpets, with loud sounding cymbals, with harps and lyres. First Chronicles 15. Clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with a voice of joy. Psalms 47.1. Now, to some of your disappointment, I'm going to tell you this, that pretty much all of the biblical mandate regarding volume in corporate praise is to be loud. Because when you come together to celebrate God, it is a celebration. There is a very appropriate place for quiet worship. But it's usually here at Church on the Rock, not on Sunday mornings. Our chapel's a little bit quieter. 
you listening to your favorite, you know, what's the new guy that's famous? Phil Wickham. Phil Wickham. At home, quiet worship. There's an appropriate place for quiet worship, but our worship is mostly loud. So can you go to the next, next one there? So now here's the thing. We think that we're loud, but we think also that we're not too loud. Now, how do we make that judgment? Uh, hearing damage, permanent hearing damage, begins to happen at 90 decibels. And believe it or not, these are conversations that we have in back rooms at Church in the Rock. Our sound system, they have a decibel reader at the soundboard, and they ensure that we do not consistently go above, there it is, 90 decibels, I always so that say, we're not doing damage. I always say Scott looks like Bob Barker with that, with that microphone. That's right. Back there. <laughs> Come on down to the price is right. But being loud is evidence of celebration. I had all of my kids in my home for the holidays, and we had several evenings where we were all gathered around the kitchen. And as we were all there hanging out and having a fun time, every single night it got too loud, because even I'm getting old and cranky. But volume is evidence of celebration. And so we are typically on the loud side on Sunday morning, but we try not to be so loud that we're harming you in the building. Next one, traditional versus contemporary. Where do you think we fall? Chris, give us a snippet of a traditional song that we sing. Okay. Come the fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me sound, melodious Second one more. All right, fight. Ready? <laughs> Our Sunday worship music tends to lean towards contemporary, and there's a reason for that. Sing to the Lord a new song. Psalms 33, Psalms 96, Isaiah 42, and they sang a new song before the throne in Revelation 14. I find this fascinating. And then one chapter later in Revelation 15, it says they sang the song of Moses. They sang in heaven. They're singing new songs and old classics. We love finding new songs that accurately convey old truths, and we love songs from our Christian heritage. But on Sundays, part of the reason we tend to lean towards newer music goes back to one of the very first scriptures I read, which is um, 
singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. One of the things that we try to do here is to the degree that there, we, we think the song is a, is a suitable song for worship, um, we want to sing songs that provide uh, the soundtrack for your week as you're making music in your heart to the Lord. And so we pick songs that are, we try to pick songs that are consistent with people are listening to during the week as far as worship music goes. Oh, so you can go to the next one. There we are. That's how we graded ourselves. Now, the next one, declarative versus petitionary. Um, what I mean by this, there are some songs that are basically stating what's true about God. Uh, what would be an example of a, one example of a declarative song? Holy, holy, holy. And by petitionary, I mean something that comes from the heart that's more of a prayer that also describes my own need for God. God, I look to you. suggest that the scripture is laden with examples of both. That there are examples of worship that are declarations about the truth of who God is. And there are examples of worship, especially in the Psalms, which is the hymn book of the Hebrew people, pleading for God's intervention. Because if he doesn't step in to save me, I'm doomed. Declarative versus petitionary. Declarative music states what's true about God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come, Revelations 4.8. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name, Exodus 15. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation, Daniel 4. But then there are those prayerful petitionary songs. One thing that I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, Psalms 27. How blessed is a person whose guilt the Lord does not take into account, Psalms 32. The Lord of armies is with us, Psalms 46. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, Psalms 51. So on Sundays, you can go to the next slide, we like to try to do both declare the truth about God and also to engage with our hearts to express our love for him and our need for him. All right, the next one here. Oh, actually, can you back up one second? Sorry. Um, I wanted to make a quick observation on this one, declarative versus petitionary. Some of my favorite teachers, teachers of the scripture that I've listened to over the years, 
have made a statement about corporate worship, and I've heard a few different, uh, very notable people that I respect highly, teachers make the same kind of statement, and that is essentially, when you come to corporate worship, it's not about your feelings. And I understand the sentiment of that. You, your feelings can't guide your understanding of who God is. But oftentimes when I hear them talk about this, it comes across fairly like harsh, as if, as if your heart isn't a relevant part of what's happening in worship and you shouldn't tune in to where your heart is at and at least begin by confessing that to the Lord. God, I need you. And I would say that, yes, your heart should not guide your worship, meaning the truth of God should guide worship, but your heart should be meaningfully engaged in an honest way so that you can meet God. Listen to Hannah in 1 Samuel 2. Then Hannah prayed and said, my heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies. Behold, I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. So she, she's worshiping, but she acknowledges her own state and the truth about God. All right, next one, linear versus repetitive. Have you ever been in a worship service where they repeated that chorus one too many times. Wait, was it here? That was good. There is a place in worship for repetition as a way of emphasizing. In Psalms 136, the line, his faithfulness is everlasting, is repeated 26 times. I don't think you're getting it. His faithfulness is everlasting. Did you hear me? His faithfulness is everlasting. His faithfulness is everlasting. Psalms 150 commands the reader to praise 13 times in six verses. Revelations 4.8, the angels repeat, holy, 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 for how long? Forever. So there is a place in worship, there is a function of repetition, and that is to focus our attention in on a truth. And yet I would say that the biblical evidence would suggest that that's less common and that linear development is more common. So let me give you an example. What's, uh, what's an example of a song that's very linear, where there's very little repetition? God of salvation, you chased down my heart and all of my failures and pride. This is one of my favorites, actually. On a hill you created, the light of the world abandoned in darkness to die. I'm not done. I'm not done yet. And as you speak, Okay, you can go. 
Yeah. <laughs> but it, yeah, it doesn't, every word is different. It just so keeps I, going. That song has, I would say, more music than just about any other contemporary song that I've seen and never repeats the same line, correct? It just, there's a continued development throughout the song. That's a linear song. Um, what's an example of a repetitive song? You're good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. That's who I am. That's who I am. Let's sing that again. You're a good, good father. You're a good, good father. truth if you're willing to be honest with me how many of you have ever been annoyed at that song before a few of you do you know what the function of repetition is in music I don't think you're hearing me let me tell you this one more time he is a good father no I know you think you believe that I need you to say it again he is a good good father with all that said, next slide, we tend towards less repetition and more linear development in songs that we sing. Last one, simplicity versus production. Now, one of the easiest sort of slights to lob at church worship, well, it's all just a big show. It's a big production. There's something you should know about music. The only kind of music that's not produced or a production is bad music. For it to sound pleasant to your ears, someone put a lot of careful thought and planning into how that sound came to you. So, but what we're talking about is maybe more like big, lots of pieces of music, versus like very, uh, I think one of the words that we talked about using is, is like raw or, uh, yeah, just simple. What's an example of a very simple song? sing that without hearing his whole band in my brain. 
because the band just brings that song in particular alive for me. Now, biblically, the distinction we're making here is between orchestral band and single instrument or voice. Simple worship expressions are so important. Like the example of Jesus, they sang a hymn together at the supper table before leaving. Speaking to one another in psalms and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord. But we also see ample evidence of a more orchestrated, large gathering for worshipful celebration. In 2 Samuel 6, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of juniper wood, with lyres and harps and tambourines, castanets and cymbals. 1 Chronicles 23, and there were 4,000 designated for praising the Lord with the instruments which David had made for giving praise. He appointed 4,000 worship leaders for the work of God. In 2 Chronicles 5, in Ezra 3, and in Nehemiah 12, on each of these we see in the corporate gathering when everyone comes together that there's oftentimes music with a lot of moving parts and pieces that's intended to create a glorious sound offered to the Lord. You should read the descriptions, like the dedication of the temple in the Chronicles. It tells you all the different musicians and how, I mean, there's hundreds of them an orchestra playing and singing together, worshiping the Lord. So on Sunday mornings here, in this environment, we believe that we tend towards the production side. Now, a few other quick considerations. One of them is, and this I don't have on a, on a variable. One of them is our words versus God's words. I've heard this come up many times over the years. Um, there are some songs that are written that are, that are just like a, a literal, uh, just, I blanked on my word, transcribing the biblical words to song lyrics. So we just take Psalms 23 and we put it to music. And I've heard people tell me, that, or I've had people tell me over the years, that that's a better way to worship the Lord together, is to sing the scripture. And I would say, that's a wonderful way to worship the Lord, but that's not what they were doing. The writers of the Psalms were writing about their own experiences, their own need for God, and their own understanding of the truth about God, and then sharing it with others. I think, I think that we, we border on a false kind of religiosity when we say what you have to express in your heart to the Lord is less worship than what the Bible has already said. No, we must be in line with the scriptures. We should not go away from the truth of the scripture. But God cares what's in your heart and values your willingness and even your ability to express that to him in praise. We want our worship to be theologically accurate, but also a true reflection of our own lived experience and our dependence upon him and our love for him. 
The second one is alignment with the songwriter. Some of our Sunday worship music is written and produced by ministries that we may not be entirely aligned with from a theological perspective or written by ministries that since this time of the song, we've discovered that they have issues with their ministry. You track with what I mean by that? Um, King David wrote most of the Psalms. Uh, I have some issues with the, some later decisions that he made. Is that fair? We're still singing it. And also, one of the things I think I personally kind of push against is like sort of embedded in that idea is that you can only sing songs written by approved songwriters is, is our capacity to keep up to date on what's happening with all the people who wrote these songs for us. No, the, the song is, is, is selected based on the merit of the song. There was a song a few years ago that I loved called Healer. Um, my every moment you calm my raging seas you guys remember this one you walked with me through fire anyone Aaron that's that's my job sorry <laughs> the guy who wrote that was faking cancer he was leading that song on stage with air with oxygen and the whole thing was alive and yet that song became very popular because of his testimony of God's healing until a few years later, it was discovered that he was fabricating the story. It's a great song. It's all true. The lyrics hold up when measured against truth. And with that said, I can't sing it. It's too weird for me now because I know what happened. Last bit about form, and I'll invite uh, Chris's team to come up. Corporate worship requires your full participation. I want to do a quick experiment uh, before you switch guitars. I want to do something real quickly. Who here uh, is willing to do an experiment with me? I'm not going to call you forward, but I'm going to ask you. Okay, Rob Anderson in the back. Thank you, Rob. Okay. Now we're all going to sing to Rob. Okay. So can you lead us? We'll put the lyrics up for Holy, Holy, Holy. Can you just lead us in that? Singing to Rob? No, we're, I mean, we're singing to the Lord, but for his encouragement. So okay. just, just... Be encouraged, Rob. Yeah. experience in a public setting. Corporate worship is your opportunity to edify the body of Christ by the way that you engage with it. I remember as a young ABI student, 17 years old, watching Mandy Boltman, now Mandy Miller, 
worship the Lord and thinking to myself, I don't do that. She's, she loves him. I should love him. And how did I see that? The way that she engaged with worship. Now, we're just going to, Rob, we're going to stick with me. We're going to do this one more time. But this time, I want you to sing like it's the last song that you will ever sing. Are you ready? And I mean, I know we're Homer, Alaska. This is not Nashville, but I know you've got it in you. So this time, I want you to sing as if you're trying to bless Rob Anderson with your own voice. Are you ready? Let's do this again. You can keep it going. like number one or number two? Number two was better. Did you find your heart even more encouraged as you heard everyone singing and everyone standing and lifting their hands? Your participation in corporate worship is intended to be a blessing to the body of Christ around you. And so engage accordingly. A couple of final things. Psalms 134.2, lift up your hands to the sanctuary. 1 Timothy 2.8, therefore I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands. There's something about engaging with the, the expressions of my own body, my voice, my hands, my eyes, my head, whatever it is. Your heart will be more engaged when you allow your body to engage during worship. I'm not trying to be weird about it. I'm just saying that when your heart, mind, and body are all operating in agreement in response to the truth of the goodness of God, you will be able to better engage. A final thought about substance. There's a story in John 4, or sorry, Mark 5, about a, a man possessed by demons. It says, when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, not even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and cutting himself with stones. And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and he bowed down before him. That word, bowed down before him, is exactly the same word that Jesus used in John 4, the word worship.
the demoniac understood probably better than you do who he was standing before or who he was kneeling before. But that's not the kind of worship that God desires. James 2, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. The worship that God desires is not just my cognitive agreement with the reality of who he is. It is the response of love to the revelation of who he is. That's the worship that Jesus says to the woman in the well. When you worship that way, God will come and find you. Did you, did you catch that? God seeks those who worship him in this way. I agree with the truth of who he is, and my heart is poured out in love for him. Amen? Are you guys ready to worship? All right, let's do this. I love watching you all worship. Oh, man. It just lifts my heart towards the Lord. It's such an encouragement. There's a final error that some of you right now are being tempted to make. And that is that as we talk publicly about what it looks like, you suddenly become more self-conscious during worship. Well, now I feel like I have to raise my hands to... I want you to know that's, that's headed down the wrong direction. I don't want you to become more self-conscious. I want you to become more aware of God. And when you, in corporate worship, express your love, appreciation for God, it's evident. You can see it. And it's a blessing to the body of Christ. Thank you for worshiping together with us. Uh, I'm gonna ask prayer team members to stay put for a couple minutes. If you want prayer for any reason, this morning, we'd like one of our elders lay hands on you and pray. They're going to be available there over to the side. If you're interested in possibly going up to Victory Bible Camp and joining the men's retreat at the end of February, come and talk to Matt. If you don't know where your next meal is coming from, talk to any one of our staff. We would love to uh, help you out. Tonight's men's chapel, 630 at The Rock. Uh, men, sixth grade and up, you're invited to come hear testimonies to worship together as men. May God bless you. May his peace be upon you this week. You're dismissed.